Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Nevaeh Buchanan from Monroe, Michigan. Nevaeh was only five years old when she was murdered in 2009. There have been several promising persons of interest in this case. One that investigators even said they were 99.999% sure killed Nevaeh. Yet no one has been brought to justice for the horrific murder of this child. Why is that? Let's dig in and see what we can find out. This is the case of Nevaeh Buchanan. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. Nevaeh Amaya Buchanan was born on February 3, 2004 to her parents Jennifer Buchanan and Shane Inohosa in Monroe, Michigan. Unfortunately, things were pretty rocky for Nevaeh from the start. According to Jennifer's mother, Sherry Buchanan, Jennifer was addicted to drugs. In order to fuel this addiction, she was breaking into homes. In 2006, Jennifer was arrested for first-degree home invasion and was sentenced to 11 months in prison. This is when Sherry Buchanan took full custody of her granddaughter. Nevaeh's father lived about 30 minutes south of Monroe in Toledo, Ohio, but he never really saw his daughter. By the time that Sherry gained full custody of Nevaeh, she was only two or three years old, so Sherry was pretty much the only parent that she ever knew. Nevaeh would even sometimes slip and call her mom instead of grandma. This is one of those cases where I found so many statements describing what type of kid Nevaeh was. She was absolutely a tomboy who did not like wearing dresses. She named every single one of her stuffed animals, but her favorite was a beagle named Harley, named after her love of motorcycles. Her favorite show was SpongeBob SquarePants, and her favorite band was the Black Eyed Peas. 
She watched the Jungle Book on repeat until Sherry got a headache. She had a lot of personality and was full of life. In 2009, by the time that Nevaeh was five, she and Sherry lived at the Charlotte Arms apartment complex in Monroe. Monroe is a smaller city in Michigan, with a population of about 23,000 people. It's positioned between Detroit and Toledo, Ohio, and is divided by the River Raisin. To the east is Lake Erie. It might sound like a sleepy waterfront town, but according to Macrotrends.net, which pulls from the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, from 2009 to 2010, violent crime in Monroe almost doubled, placing it well above the national average. In addition to taking care of Nevaeh, 53-year-old Sherry also worked full-time at a local grocery store called Food Town. I'm sure this isn't how Sherry imagined spending her 50s, but in her interviews, it's clear that she loved Nevaeh so much. Ultimately, Nevaeh seemed really happy and well-adjusted. She made a ton of friends at the apartment complex, and in the spring of 2009, she was just finishing preschool. On top of that, around March, Nevaeh's mom Jennifer moved in with her mother and daughter. It appears that 24-year-old Jennifer was ready to get her life back on track. Things seemed to be going well. Jennifer didn't have a job, but she was able to help take care of Nevaeh and re-establish a relationship with her. On May 21, 2009, Nevaeh graduates from preschool at Riverside Elementary. Jennifer says she basically sprinted across the stage to get her diploma. Just a few days later was Memorial Day weekend. The family didn't appear to have any big plans. In fact, Sherry had to work. But that didn't stop Nevaeh from having a good time. On Sunday, May 24th, she spent a lot of time with kids around the complex. Specifically, her good friend Austin. Austin was eight and lived upstairs. According to his father, Nevaeh was pretty much his best friend, and they saw each other almost every day. Now, the timeline for the earlier part of this day is a little bit difficult to track down. In a teary-eyed statement to the news that night, Austin's father, Aaron, says that Nevaeh ate her last meal at his apartment at 3.30 p.m. It's also worth noting that on this day, Jennifer's friend and her daughter came over to spend the night. The girls were out playing and the adults were hanging out in the apartment. Around 6.30 p.m., Nevaeh comes inside from playing after having an accident. She was potty trained, but she was still learning how to not wait until the last minute. These things happen. Unscathed by this accident, Nevaeh changes her clothes and tells Jennifer that she's going upstairs to play a game with Austin. Door-to-door, the apartments were about a 10-second walk from each other. Basically, it was just up the stairs. Nevaeh grabs a popsicle out of the freezer and walks out of the house barefoot. The Charlotte Arms apartment complex really does seem like one of those complexes where all of the kids were playing together constantly, and everyone was in and out of each other's apartments. So, nothing about this was unusual to Jennifer. In her original statements, she said that she remained on the couch watching reruns of John and Kate Plus 8, and she trusted Nevaeh to make it to Austin's apartment like she had so many times before. But in an interview with Nancy Grace... She insists that she watched Nevaeh walk into Austin's apartment. By 7 p.m., a girl that Jennifer describes as a tattletale knocks on her door to say that Nevaeh was riding her scooter in the road. Jennifer immediately assumes that this isn't actually the road, but most likely one of the two parking lots at the complex. Still, Nevaeh knew not to do this. 
So Jennifer gets up, starts looking for her sandals, intent on giving Nevaeh a timeout. While she's looking for her shoes, another little girl knocks on the door and asks to play with Nevaeh. Jennifer tells her that she's either upstairs with Austin or in the parking lot playing. After a few minutes, Jennifer finds her shoes and first looks out the back door of her building to see if Nevaeh was in the parking lot. Then she checks the sandbox and nearby playground. Once she checks all the usual spots that Nevaeh played in and couldn't find her, she begins screaming her name. She then starts knocking on the doors of her friends' houses, but she can't find Nevaeh anywhere. Jennifer then tells the manager of the complex, and they circle the apartment buildings. This is when she says that she finds Nevaeh's green and purple scooter abandoned, though other reports would say that the police found the scooter. She also calls her ex-boyfriend George Kennedy. I've seen conflicting reports about what George was doing at this time, with some sources saying that he was fishing with his new girlfriend. Other sources say that he wasn't with his girlfriend at that time. Either way, George and his girlfriend make their way to the apartments to help look for Nevaeh. They also might have stopped at her preschool, which was right down the street, to see if she was on the playground there. If you couldn't tell already, one of the most frustrating things about researching Nevaeh's case is just how many conflicting stories there are. It seems like pretty much the entire town was so emotionally invested in Nevaeh's case that there was just a lot of gossip. There were also countless statements made to the news by neighbors, friends, and just residents of the town. So I just wanted to warn you that conflicting statements will be kind of a theme in this episode. Around 8.15pm, Jennifer Buchanan finally calls the police, though some sources say that she wasn't even the one who made the call. We do know that she also calls Sherry Buchanan, who just ended her shift minutes before. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office and Michigan State Police arrive within minutes, and they begin to search for Nevaeh. They also interview Jennifer extensively. It's at this point that they realize who her ex-boyfriend George Kennedy is. George Kennedy was a 39-year-old felon sex offender. He served time for home invasion, just like Jennifer had, but also for accosting a 13-year-old girl and raping a 15-year-old girl behind a gas station. So when Jennifer tells the police that Nevaeh was very close to George, even calling him Daddy George, they immediately arrest him for violating the terms of his probation, as he wasn't supposed to have any contact with children. He is also named a person of interest. At 12.30am on the morning of Monday, May 25th, an Amber Alert is issued for Nevaeh. At this time, Amber Alerts in Michigan worked a little bit differently than they do today. In 2009, Amber Alerts were faxed to radio and TV stations chosen by the Michigan State Police. The alert was only sent to cell phones who opted into these alerts. So, Nevaeh's Amber Alert didn't hit everyone right away like they usually do today. But news spreads fast in Monroe, and hundreds of people show up to help search for Nevaeh. There are dogs, helicopters, and a dive team equipped with sonar to help search the nearby quarry. The police also search all 180 apartments at Charlotte Arms, and speak to as many residents as possible. This includes Tim Finley, who was just visiting his sister at the complex the night before. He says that around 7pm, he didn't see any kids outside, but he did see a little red car speeding out of the parking lot. Of course, police continued to question Jennifer. 
soon they discover that Jennifer was associated with another sex offender whom she met through George Kennedy. This was 48-year-old Roy Lee Smith, who in 1991 was charged with third-degree criminal sexual conduct for rape. He'd only been released from his 15-year prison sentence the year before. As a condition of his probation, he was not to associate with children. So like George Kennedy, he was swiftly arrested and a few days later labeled a person of interest. His mother, Donna Smith, was quick to defend her son, stating to ABC News, quote, I don't believe my son had anything to do with this. She added that all of this was because, quote, a girl decided to holler rape. She also mentioned that her son and George Kennedy did swap vehicles recently. Smith traded his van to Kennedy and got his Thunderbird in exchange. There was no real explanation as to why these two traded vehicles, but this wasn't a fact I could ignore. Over the next few days, the searches continued. Nevaeh's family, members of law enforcement, and members of the community gathered each day at the local Kmart to distribute flyers and assignments. Nevaeh's father also traveled to Monroe to aid in the searches for his daughter. He admitted that he hadn't seen her in a few years. In fact, he actually had a warrant out for his arrest in Monroe due to owing back child support. But you can tell in his interviews that he was really just beside himself over what happened. He even set up a tent to live at the Charlotte Arms during the searches. On Wednesday, May 27th, authorities obtained a search warrant for George Kennedy's room at the Motel 7 he'd been staying at. This was possibly prompted by statements made by two children at the Charlotte Arms who say that they saw Nevaeh walk into the woods with a man, and that she'd been stabbed. In the room, they do find blood. They find it on the wall, on a pair of shorts, a towel, a quilt, and some type of tool. They also find pictures of young girls. Ultimately, the blood does not belong to Nevaeh. George Kennedy insists that he doesn't know how the blood got there but he assumes he probably cut himself. On the same day, Jennifer is questioned again. She also allows investigators to search her home and electronic devices. She never retains legal counsel. She would reiterate that she didn't need it because she was innocent. She also added that she didn't do drugs, hardly ever drank, didn't owe anyone money, and hardly had any enemies. She couldn't think of anyone who would want to harm her child. On Thursday, May 28th, students at Airport High School wear yellow and hang yellow ribbons on their lockers in support of the search for Nevaeh. The police also announced that they have interviewed at least 240 people in relation to the case. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office, the Michigan State Police, and now the FBI were all involved in this investigation. A few days later, a third person of interest would be named in Nevaeh's case. On May 31st, two FBI agents knocked on the door of 65-year-old James Easter. They'd gotten reports that he'd been burning quite a few items in his backyard. Like George Kennedy and Roy Smith, it appears that James Easter had his own sordid and disturbing history. In the 1990s, he was behind the Monroe Library on a particularly warm and sunny day. He says that because it was such a nice day, he just felt like taking off his clothes and getting a little sun. Soon after, two young boys and their dog walked around the corner. They went and told someone what they saw, and he was charged with indecent exposure. He was given one year of probation. So these two FBI agents ask if they can come in and take a look around. James Easter complies. 
The agents then ask if he would be willing to come down to the station to answer a few questions. During what would become a 12-hour investigation, James Easter says that these two agents pretty much used all of the techniques that we've become familiar with in this podcast to elicit a confession. They strong-armed him, saying that they know that he did it. They administer a polygraph test and let him know that he failed a few questions, but wouldn't tell him which ones. Near the end of the 12 hours, James Easter begs them to let him show them the receipts that would prove that he didn't take Nevaeh. So the agents take him home, he shows them the receipts, and they leave. Not long after they leave, James Easter proceeds to burn more items in his backyard. Minutes later, he says six to nine officers in blue uniforms rushed at him from the south corner of his complex, screaming for him to get down. He was handcuffed, they extinguished the fire, and began to investigate. James Easter was apparently burning receipts, TV dinners, and a sex toy that he said that he had just had for too long. He is promptly arrested on charges related to burning property and named a person of interest in Nevaeh's case. James Easter will give what seems like an endless amount of concerning statements about Nevaeh's case. After he's arrested, he speaks with an FBI agent who asks him, what do you think happened to Nevaeh? James Easter replied, quote, If I were a bad guy and I was looking for something like a little girl or a little child, I would have drove my pickup in there. I would have made a horseshoe around the office and the pool. He goes on to say that he would have pulled into the streets, turned on his hazards, pretending to have a problem, and then, quote, snuck up along the blind side of those pine trees, walked clear to where she'd been. That's a long ways to go. You have to go past the dumpsters. Then there's an opening before you get to the street. There were always maintenance people hanging around there. You might be asking what I was asking at this point. How did James Easter know so much about the Charlotte Arms apartment complex? Well, it appears that his girlfriend, Janie Austin, who, yes, is a real person, lived at the complex. Not only that, but Janie Austin says that she might have been the last person to see Nevaeh. She told the Detroit Free Press, quote, It was about five or six o'clock. I just saw her go by with the little boy behind her on the scooter. She was riding it like a wonderful little child. Just minutes later, she saw the scooter laying abandoned under her window. She told police that she didn't hear any screams. Janie Austin was never named a person of interest in this case. When the police searched James Easter's home more thoroughly, they found a lot of pornography, duct tape, gloves from a red trash can, and several Barbie dolls that Easter claims were supposed to be a Christmas present for his granddaughter. They also took fiber samples from his carpet and fingerprints from high-traffic areas in the home. The list of property taken is three pages long. James Easter is held for three days on the charges related to burning property and let go. Over the next few days, Monroe County Sheriff Tillman Crutchfield announces that James Easter is no longer a person of interest. He also announces that he is looking for the owners of a green van and a silver van seen near an elementary school in the area, and that they are questioning an ice cream truck driver. At this point, there was an entire task force put together for Nevaeh, and a $20,000 reward for information being offered. The community was in an uproar about this. Everyone was paranoid of their neighbors and friends, and everyone was demanding answers for Nevaeh. Tensions were so high in the community that the FBI made an announcement to state that they are working on the case as hard as they can, 
but it could take a few years to solve it. But just a few days after this announcement, a chilling discovery was made that would change this case forever. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. On June 4th, 2009, a man named Guy Bickley and his father decided to go fishing that morning for some smallmouth bass. They originally planned on going to Lake Erie, but since it was pretty windy, Guy suggested that they tried a new spot that he'd been wanting to try out on the River Raisin. The two men arrived to the river around 9.30am. They fished all morning, and around 12pm, they made a disturbing discovery. Here is Guy telling CNN exactly what happened. Uh, we went down on the banks, and uh, immediately I saw some concrete on the ground uh, off to one side of where we were uh, going to set up to fish, and uh, there were some rocks adjoining the uh, cement. I thought possibly somebody had filled a hole uh, where erosion was starting. Uh, I simply did not believe that it was anything more. Uh, than that at the time. Uh, I proceeded to literally sit on the rocks and put my feet on the concrete as a place to sit to fish while my father was uh, over on the other side uh, of the the area that we were fishing on. And uh, slowly but surely, I was smelling things, 
and asked him if he smelt it, and he said, yes, I, I thought there might be a dead fish on a shoreline somewhere close by. Uh, shortly after that, I took a little walk. I didn't see anything, uh, but I still figured it was something on the shoreline down there, wind blowing my way. But through all the traffic of moving and fishing and standing up, I had uh, cracked up the concrete that we had saw laying on the ground there. And at one point, uh, the flies just started getting terrible. And they were landing on me, I was shaking them off. And then I saw them landing on the ground down where the concrete had cracked from me uh, walking about. And I told my dad to look at this. Well, I pushed my foot onto the cracks and it went down and came right back up as if there was some kind of pressure beneath the concrete. Uh, I then proceeded to scrape the little chunks that had cracked off with my toe and that's when a small area of skin was visible to both myself and my father and we immediately packed up our gear and moved to the top of the hill and uh, called 911. After authorities assessed the scene, they announced that they had found the remains of a young girl matching Nevaeh's description, down to her height, weight, and even the shirt that she was wearing. The remains were placed in a shallow grave dug along the riverbed, and concrete had been poured over top. Most of the residents of Monroe knew right away that this had to be Nevaeh, but her family held out hope. Authorities explain that although the remains matched Nevaeh's description, they were awaiting further testing to confirm this. Then, Sheriff Crutchfield makes a statement that would only rile up the community further. That person, uh, to our knowledge, is still out there in the community. Um, in my opinion, it's, it is a very sick or disturbed person we're looking for. A person that is able to abduct and murder an innocent five-year-old child. Most of the town was certain that the remains were Nevaeh's, so they took this to mean that neither George Kennedy or Roy Smith committed this crime. But on this same day, both men were moved from city jail to state prison, which sparked a lot of discussion. The community was confused and upset. The remains were sent to the Wayne County Medical Examiner, and the entire area where the remains were found was blocked off and searched for two days. They literally sifted the soil, looking for any clues about who could have done this. As far as I could find, not much was recovered from the scene. But there was one thing I found to be pretty interesting. They found a 90-pound bag of cement. Now, only a few stores in town sold this particular sized bag one of which was the Coleman Cement Company. Interestingly enough, not only was this company located behind the Motel 7 that George Kennedy was staying at, but their fence had just recently been cut. At this point, Jennifer Buchanan wants to see the remains of this child, but authorities tell her that the remains are so badly decomposed that they don't recommend it, and ultimately refuse her request. Because Nevaeh had never had any dental x-rays taken, they take DNA from Jennifer and dust her home for Nevaeh's fingerprints for comparison. But this testing takes a few days. Over these next few days, the town's anxiety and panic only amplifies, and pretty much everyone is looking at Jennifer Buchanan. Nevaeh's father and uncle both say that they hope Jennifer had nothing to do with her disappearance. 
but they think whoever did should be punished to the full extent of the law. Jennifer also begins to speak to the media extensively. She defends herself and George Kennedy, saying that she believes in giving people second chances. In a two-and-a-half-hour interview with the Detroit Free Press, she tells them, quote, If George wanted to do that, he would have done it a little sooner. That's the way I feel, but I could be wrong. Jennifer also talks to two different radio stations expressing similar sentiments. I feel that it really doesn't matter. Not all offenders reoffend. Um, no one ever knows if a person is a sex offender or not, unless they are labeled. Right. When one anybody could be a sex offender. On June 9th, Jennifer went on Nancy Grace with her friend Holly Howerton and was pretty much ripped to shreds especially after expressing that she believed George Kennedy had consensual sex with the 15-year-old that he raped. Jennifer and Holly end up walking off the show during a commercial break. Around this time, it was confirmed that the remains found on the bank of the River Raisin were those of Nevaeh Buchanan. Multiple witnesses claim that when they saw officers come to the Charlotte Arms apartment complex, they knew exactly what they were there for. And after they left they could hear wailing coming from the family's apartment. On June 10th, 2009, Jennifer went back on Channel 955 Mojo in the Morning to say that she thinks she knows who might have been involved. Pretty sure that probably someone associated with George or his girlfriend or a few other, I don't know. I understand all too well that thoughts and feelings evolve over time in situations like this. We also saw this in the Jacob Blondine case. When Jacob was murdered, his mother couldn't believe that it was her boyfriend. But after some time, she finally saw what was in front of her for years. No one can say for sure what Jennifer knows. And I'm not trying to release her from any responsibility for what happened to her daughter. I'm just saying that having a change of heart like this isn't that uncommon after having some time to process things. Either way, she continues to receive a lot of scrutiny and is pretty much picked apart by the media for this change of heart. After this, Jennifer stops giving interviews for a while. While authorities and Nevaeh's family waited for the results of the autopsy, they began planning her funeral. With the help of a lot of donations from the community, on June 13th, they had a beautiful ceremony for her. There were at least 100 motorcycles that accompanied a Harley-Davidson hearse carrying Nevaeh and her small white coffin. At the service, they played Halo by Beyonce, there was a dance performance, and a trio sang a song titled Nevaeh that reminded the attendees that her name is Heaven spelt backwards. After the ceremony, she was buried at the St. Joseph Cemetery, where hundreds of people gathered with balloons and signs to show their support. The residents of Monroe were not only devastated, but they were terrified. In some of the interviews from the service, residents wondered if the killer was right there with them while they laid Nevea to rest. Finally, on June 14th, the autopsy results came back. Her cause of death was asphyxiation. When they tested her lungs, it was clear that she'd inhaled dirt. This led investigators to believe that she was most likely alive face down in the dirt while the perpetrator poured concrete over her body. They believe she was killed shortly after she went missing. There were no visible signs of abuse on her body and no stab wounds were present. 
According to Nevaeh's cousin, Sean Lawson, carpet fibers were found on her body or under her fingernails. Jennifer Buchanan did say that the results show that her daughter was not sexually abused. Nevaeh's father, unfortunately, found out these results through the media. At this point, they had about 1,200 tips in Nevaeh's case, but as the media began to waver without a lot of new information, so did these tips. A series of community grief sessions were offered in the city of Monroe as they tried to begin to heal from this tragedy. By August, investigators say that leads slowed down to a trickle compared to what was coming in before. A couple months after Nevaeh was buried, Sherry Buchanan moved out of the apartment they shared together. She said that there were just too many memories there. Jennifer would also move out and live with a friend. She said that her life just paused. She couldn't find a job. She didn't want to go to school. She didn't know what to do. On the one-year anniversary of Nevaeh's remains being found, investigators held a press conference announcing that they were looking into another Monroe resident. Detective Sergeant Heath Villaquette of the Monroe County Sheriff's Office stated, quote, This is not a cold case. We are following up on leads and investigating new information every day. We aren't to the point where we want to go out and make an arrest, but we've made a lot of progress. Very significant progress. He adds that they are not naming any suspects or persons of interest, but they haven't ruled anyone out. He also tells CNN that they are taking the case in a different direction due to some recent developments. Later that month, the Detroit Free Press runs this huge piece titled Who Killed Nevaeh? As a part of this piece, they interview James Easter extensively, as well as one of his neighbors. This piece, that actually spans so many pages and a few days, blew my mind. The Detroit Free Press has amazing coverage of Nevaeh's case, but this piece about James Easter was something I had to tell you guys about. So they visit a neighbor of James Easter named Christina Pillette. She's 61, and she lives with her husband, Dennis. Now, they don't outright say this in the article, but they make it seem like Christina and Dennis moved into their home specifically to keep an eye on James Easter. Dennis even set up a camera in their kitchen window to watch him 24-7. Christina says that this is basically her obsession at this point. She is certain that James Easter has something to do with Nevaeh's murder. She also personally feels invested in the case. Before Nevaeh went missing, she was actually looking at apartments at Charlotte Arms, and she says this is where she met Sherry and Nevaeh. They gave her a tour of the apartment and ended up spending a few hours together. She was smitten by Nevaeh, and she says that she now visits her grave almost every single day. Ultimately, she says that she just wants to help prevent another child from going missing. She admits to spending hours every single day watching the footage of James, and she even follows him when he leaves the house, sometimes switching cars with friends so she won't be recognized. But James says that he's well aware he's being watched, not only by Christina and the community, but by the police as well. In fact, during the interview with Christina, reporter Jeff Seidel sees a police car outside of James's home. James approaches the car, and the car drives away. Christina takes this as a sign that James Easter is getting really nervous about being watched. But after reading through these articles, it doesn't seem to me like James Easter is nervous at all. I also don't think he did himself any favors with what he told this reporter. When Jeff Seidel enters Easter's home, he's met with a stack of newspapers featuring Nevaeh's case. 
James Easter proudly boasts that he has every single paper that has ever covered the case. Except for two. But he quickly realizes how that might be perceived, saying, quote, Don't say this guy could be collecting this because pedophiles and murderers like to collect their little evidence. No. James Easter goes on to tell the Detroit Free Press through a series of four interviews that being named a person of interest in the case has ruined his life. He adds that he hasn't been able to see his granddaughter in over a year because his family refuses to let him see her now. After this, he gets angry and begins talking about the person that killed Nevea, saying they deserved capital punishment. And then he goes into a very spirited discussion about the case and begins physically acting things out. He tells Jeff Seidel, quote, If I had it my way, I'd go back to the old days and put a rope around his neck and let him feel it slowly. Not just drop him down where it's over in a second. He snaps and changes his voice as if he's speaking to Nevea's killer. You choked her to death while you were putting cement over her. Ready mix cement. You choked her to death to hold her in there. He then snaps out of it and begins describing how Nevea might have been killed. Man, visualize yourself on your knees at the edge of the river. And this little girl. And you already have the whole dug. And now you're holding her in there. Now what do you got? You got a pail here where you knocked over. And you scoop the rest over. Maybe it's possible you could have done it by yourself. And your hands are in there, holding her down. While she's struggling, kicking her legs up. And pretty soon she suffocates. He then begins acting this out. Now you embed her legs and curl up the body in whatever way that you do. Put some more. He explains that maybe the killer needed more concrete to cover the body. Maybe you have a second bag, and you just get some water from the river and start mixing it and just put it in. He was well equipped. He or she, or both of them, knew what they were going to do. He then breaks down crying, saying that he's innocent, that it's not in his nature, and he wouldn't risk going to jail. He goes on to tell Seidel that he remembers the first time he saw Nevea at the Charlotte Arms apartment complex. He was at his girlfriend's apartment on the second floor. He didn't see her face, but he was sure it was her. He says he remembers pretty much every detail. Where she was standing, what she was wearing, what she was doing, and what he was thinking. He describes her hair as long and pulled back, saying that she was wearing a nice pretty dress that was white or pink. As scary as this article might sound, it's just an article, and James Easter was never arrested on charges related to Nevaeh's murder. And neither were George Kennedy or Roy Smith. Jennifer Buchanan also maintained her innocence, still sparsely giving interviews, mostly only around the time of the anniversary. But in 2012, she admitted that she hadn't spoken to the police in nearly two years. On May 23, 2012, the sheriff says that he thinks they are closer than ever to making an arrest. But less than a week later, on May 29th, an investigator tells Monroe News that they are back at square one. By 2013, authorities say that they receive maybe one tip a month about Nevea. But in May of 2014, near the five-year anniversary of Nevea's death, this cold case turns red hot. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak. 
but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash justice. ZocDoc dot com slash justice. On May 22, 2014, Monroe News reports that investigators believe that they know who killed Nevea Buchanan. They won't name this person of interest, but they say that it's not any of the persons of interest named previously. They also say that this person was a male and was born and raised in Monroe. He had issues in his teen years. He was suspended from school, had bad grades, and fought with his family. They said that this was a crime of opportunity. They add that he's now in his 30s, serving time in prison on felony domestic assault charges, and he'd be there for the next 10 years or longer. He's also facing charges for allegedly attempting to murder another inmate. One investigator said that he was 99.999% sure that this unnamed person is the person that killed Nevea. This was upsetting to a lot of people, specifically Nevea's cousin and founder of Justice for Nevea, Risa Smith. She told CBS News in Detroit, quote, Now I am infuriated. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm mad, I'm heartbroken. There's a possibility if we had an idea of who this was, we could possibly find out or talk to other people to get the information that we need. I think they kind of justified it to some degree by telling us that he would be in prison for the next decade on an unrelated felony. I don't see how anyone could see that that's justice for Nevea. It became even more upsetting as the years continued to pass with no arrests being made. Despite this major bombshell in 2014, in 2016, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office told WTOL 11 that they hadn't had anything new in Nevea's case since 2012. That's unfortunately pretty much where Nevaeh's case sits today. It's tragic and confusing. Did George Kennedy steal that 90-pound bag of cement and use it to bury Nevaeh alive? What about the mysterious red car zipping out of the parking lot? Did James Easter do this? Did his girlfriend help? What about the unnamed person of interest that they were 99.999% sure killed Nevaeh? Nevaeh's murder has left a huge hole in the hearts of the people that loved her, and in some cases, even in the hearts of the people that didn't know her. In the area where Nevaeh was found, along the bank of the River Raisin, a piece of the concrete used to bury her was repurposed into a memorial for her. Guy Bickley says that he still stops at Nevaeh's memorial when he drives by. He says that although he never met her, he can feel a piece of her still there. Nevaeh's father, Shane, now takes Nevaeh's half-siblings there once a year to honor their sister's memory as well. As far as Sherry Buchanan, well, she's never really recovered. For years, when she'd see children separated from their parents while working at Food Town, she'd point to Nevaeh's poster and tell them her story, pleading with them to please stay close to their parents and not end up like her granddaughter. In 2019, she told reporters that she still has some of Nevaeh's favorite things, pulling them out of evidence bags. But after so many years, they don't smell like her anymore. All she has left 
are these few items, some pictures, and her memories. Before I end this episode, I want to leave you with some glimmer of hope for Nevaeh. Like I mentioned earlier, Nevaeh's cousin, Risa Smith, founded Justice for Nevaeh. This organization not only advocates for Nevaeh by raising awareness and demanding answers, but they have made a huge impact on their community in her honor. They have held countless events, including annual Easter, back-to-school, Halloween, and Christmas events that benefit children in need. They also hold rallies focusing on self-defense and child safety awareness. They even established a scholarship fund in Nevaeh's memory, and they raised $50,000 for a reward for information that leads to a conviction in her case. Which brings me right to our call to action. Please share Nevaeh's picture and story. There are still so many people that care about her and her case, which is very promising. As we know, not all cases have groups or entire communities behind them like Nevaeh's. Just because there hasn't been an arrest made doesn't mean she won't ever get justice. Nevaeh Buchanan was five years old when she was murdered. She was three foot, eight inches tall with brown hair and brown eyes. She weighed approximately 45 pounds. At the time that she went missing, she was wearing a baby blue, red, and white striped v-neck shirt and jean shorts. If you have any information about Nevaeh's death, please call the anonymous tip line at 734-457-6713. As always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.